You can be seated. Uh, the kiddos are going to stay in here with us today, the school-aged kids. Um, we do that the uh, first Sunday of um, every month. I guess that's still going on, right? So many things have changed that I have no idea. Like, oh no, we made a decision that... Um... I've been on sabbatical, for those of you who don't know, um, for since the middle of June. And uh, I stayed in touch uh, with Jason, Weston, some of the pastors, but they only told me the good news. So uh, I thought we were doing really great as a church. So I come in and I'm like, hey, where's that person? Oh, they left while you were gone. Oh, man, that's terrible. Um, didn't tell me any of the bad news, just the good news. So, uh, so you, you know, Jason's been bragging on you guys, I guess. Uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open it up to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. I kind of got to, anytime I have a pick em, um, it's always in Ephesians. If You've been with us very long. We went through the book of Ephesians as we started the church, and we spent about 18 months there. And it informed uh, my theology and our practice of what the church looks like over that year and a half in crazy and immense ways. When we started the church, we didn't have community groups. When we wanted to one day, it was through the book of Ephesians and this communal language that is so rich in here that we started taking steps toward that and to make mission the center of those things and on and on. So anytime I get to choose, I end up back in Ephesians. It's such a rich book. If you've never read it cover to cover, um, I encourage you to do it, um, and not just once, but maybe a few times. And if you're married, read it with your spouse or with your, uh, if you've got kids that are old enough that can help uh, read through, give some accountability and talk about some of the things that Paul says in there, just such a rich book. I was going to do um, part two today of, you know, what I learned on uh, sabbatical. I'm not going to do that. Let me just mention a few things before we jump in of things that I really feel like God told me. I thought sabbatical would be this like uh, this easy and restful, climb up the mountain, God give you the tablets kind of thing, and it was not that at all. Um, and one of the things I found out is that life is just hard. It's just, life's just hard. Um, we live uh, in a world that's full of sin, um, and in my home, there lives five sinners. Um, so I live in a home of sinners, um, namely me, uh, or chief among them is me. And, uh, and life is just really, really difficult. Um, but in the midst of all those things that God is really good, in the midst of really just a hard um, life. I was reading just, uh, just last week where Paul says, he tells about all those crazy things that happened to him, and then he says, but these light and momentary afflictions, like he's been shipwrecked and he's almost died several times and his family's turned their back on him and people are trying to chase him down, but they're light and momentary. Then he says, when you compare them to the eternal weight of glory, that's pretty awesome. So you may come in here today with a little self-pity about how hard life is. Compared to the eternal weight of glory, these things are light and momentary, even if at the present time they feel extremely heavy. Another thing I learned was that grief is not linear. If you've been with us for a while, you know my father passed away in January. And I've been working pretty hard, and I think over the summer I had time to think. And uh, in seminary, they teach you the uh, stages of grief. You know, it's, you know, denial, and that moves into anger, and on and on. And I thought grief was like this pit that was dug that you kind of fell into, and the stages were these steps up out of the hole kind of thing. That's why I thought grief was like. But it's really just kind of all over the place, and you never know when it's going to hit, and you take one step forward and eight steps back can be just 
extremely overwhelming at times. You can feel like you're doing a lot better. I feel that I've proven the promise true. God's promised to us that God is near to the brokenhearted and uh, that he doesn't waste any tear, any grief that we walk through, that he wants to use that. What he does in us, he wants to do through us. He wants to use our scars, not just the redemption of them, but he wants to use the actual scars as a means of testimony about what he's done and what he can do. So grief's not linear. And then the other thing is that uh, the Christian life is not mission impossible. This is kind of this picture maybe I've had because I just love those kind of uh, movies as a teenager. You know, Mission Impossible, you've seen that with Tom Cruise and this movie normally opens up with him like opening up some kind of message that says the mission, should you choose to accept it, is this. And it's going to explode in a few minutes or something. And then he sets off on this uh, incredible journey to go and fulfill this mission that has been put before him. But I don't think the Christian life is like that at all. I used to think that when I opened the Bible, here's the mission part, that God would like choose, Luke, should you choose to accept it today, this is your mission. Go and love your enemies. And then I'd be like, okay, I've got to love my enemies today. And it would be that. So I would go to the word for God's like uh, mission in front of me today. And that's really not what the Christian life is like at all. Song we just sang, just talk about the beauty of God and his face being beautiful and seeing him for who he is. That's really what the Christian life is. It's delighting in him. It's about being with him. It's not just opening the word to, okay, God, let me download your will today so I don't make any wrong moves here. God just invites us just to come and be with him, and that's what he wants us to do. It's an invitation to come and be with him. I guess another thing I learned is that people make time for what's important to them. Over sabbatical, I had no no work responsibilities necessarily, and I found myself still putting off the things that I don't like and love to do, and people make time for what's important. So with that, let me say a quick prayer. And uh, we'll jump into the book of Ephesians. Pray with me. Father, thank you for uh, this morning, for what you're doing in and through us. I pray as we open your word today that you would speak to us. Not just uh, my thought or opinion, but Father, that your word would become living and active as you say that it is. And we believe that it is, and it would become the most important thing in this room to us, the most authoritative view on anything, that we would hear your heart, and uh, we would be willing to uh, forsake the little idols that we tend to chase after so that we can make um, our lives about you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this uh, phrase has kind of captivated me. Let me read it for you in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says in his letter to Ephesus, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Therefore, be imitators of God. 
There's this picture here that Paul's kind of wrapping up. He kind of connects several like ongoing thoughts with this word therefore. But he's talking about this new life that we're to live as Christians. And he's kind of setting the bar like incredibly high of speaking truth to one another, um, of forgiving one another, of being filled with the spirit. And then he's going to give us, you know, the words to husbands and wives later and to the family about everyone submitting to one another and, 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 and our roles that we're going to live out in. And then he kind of comes to this culmination. There's this pause we start in chapter five therefore and he kind of sums it all up in this one phrase be imitators of God now I love strategy and I love to strategize and you can come to our office downtown and you'll see we've got 14 whiteboards and they all have Jason's drawings all over them or words or things we're trying to do I love the strategy part of growing an organization like the church but even way more than that like Christianity is not about strategy ultimately Paul sums it up in this one thing this one phrase for us be imitators of God our mission in front of us as a man or woman or boy and girl in this room, as a family, the vision that God has for us echoed through Paul and his writing to this young church in Ephesus is, listen, all of these things could be summed up in this one phrase. Here's how you're supposed to live your life. Here's how you're supposed to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, he says in chapter 4. Here's how you're to do that. Go and be imitators of God as beloved children. I read a great sociologist several years ago wrote that one of the greatest needs that every human being has is to be loved and accepted and accepted, loved and accepted. We also, he would go on, want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to know that we're here for a purpose and that our lives really mean something. And if someone can clue into those things, that they're really loved and accepted and that there's this great plan for their life, something bigger than them, then they can most of the time live a life full and happy. And I think this is just an echo of the hardwiring of how we're wired that God placed upon our lives, this desire to be loved and accepted and to get caught up in something greater than ourselves. And this is how Paul actually expresses this in in chapter 5. One of the greatest things he says there, and you may have blown over it, but be imitators of God as beloved children. You were created by God in his image to be loved and accepted by him, to walk in this great confidence as a child of God, but also to be a part of this great redemptive story that God is now working through the power of the gospel. And I want to also point out that when he says be imitators of God, this next phrase as beloved children is so important because this is what God does. Again, this is not Christian life as mission impossible, No, God says, hey, listen, because, remember we talked about this several uh, months ago, that kind of the rhythm of the Christian life is inhaling our identity and exhaling obedience. It is not coming in here this morning just to get this download of, okay, here's what I've got to go work feverishly the rest of the week. Or we kind of uh, calibrate or judge our lives based upon the other people in the room that we see doing well. Now we've got to go and work feverishly to catch up. No, he says, listen, I want you to go be imitators of God as beloved children. Identity is always attached. It always precedes what he's asking us to do. Inhaling our identity. We see this. God the Father gave us this great picture of this through his own son. In Matthew 3, at the baptism of Jesus, maybe you remember this. 
God speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Again, later on in Matthew 17, God speaks again. On the Mount of Transfiguration, everybody's getting caught up in all the things that are going on. And God speaks and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Moms and dads, some of the greatest things that you can give your kids is this affirmation that you love them. My father grew up um, in a home, and maybe this is just most of that generation where dads didn't express that kind of love a lot, but my dad was really good at it. I remember he would take us to school many mornings, and um, all the way up until high school, when we pulled up in the school parking lot, he would lean over for a kiss, which was cool when we were little kids, right? (laughs) Seriously, first day, freshman year. We pull up in this uh, hideous blue van. I was trying to get him to drop me off like a few blocks away. First day at this high school, new school for me. He leans over for the kiss. I'm like, I'm cool, Dad. I'm cool. He was so good that he just always expressed this acceptance and love for us. I can't tell you how many times he walked up and would tell me, Hey, Luke, I'm proud of you, bud. You're doing a phenomenal job. Many of you, I know he would tell Jason, they'd tell many of you to come and say, I just want you to know I'm so proud of you and what you're doing. That he, he understood this great need in our hearts and our lives, and he verbalized it. And one of the greatest things you can do for your kids is to verbalize that love and affection you have for them, even if it's not cool. Even if you grew up in a home where, you know, dads weren't very affectionate or moms weren't very affectionate, one of the greatest things you can do is just to, Hug them up and just tell them that you love them. Certainly what God did when he spoke verbally of his son Jesus, and I think this is what Paul's reminding of uh, us this morning, that we are loved by God. He didn't adopt us in his family because we were cunning or we had great wisdom or that, uh, that we're the best engineer or teacher. Or we excel in our... We, he didn't pick us because of any of those things. He didn't choose us because of that. No, he loves us because he loves us, and that's in his character. We belong to his family, but that's not the end. We are loved so that we can love others. This is the natural flow of the love of God in us leads us to bearing fruit, to loving others. As if we might miss this, Jesus was very clear when he connected these dots for us. When asked what the greatest commandment was, he gave them two, if you remember, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see the connection that God's love in us, toward us, the identity piece is expressed through our love for our neighbor? Go over to First and Second Peter. You'll see this theme that runs through the book over and over, that we are a display and declare people. We are deeply loved and changed by God, the Holy Spirit working in us to be able to live a supernatural life in the natural realm to such an extent that our lives would demand this gospel ex- explanation, that our lives would make no sense apart from the life of Jesus. And that's what I've been praying for my family. That's what I've been praying for your family. That's what I've been praying for our church. And I don't know how big we'll get or how many groups we'll plant or how many churches like Stevens will plant. But my prayer for us is that, is that we would be, that, that our lives would make no sense apart from Jesus. 
That we would live in such a way with this radical love towards the watching world, this radical love within our own homes, this, this supernatural love in and through us, that our lives would make no sense apart from Jesus, that our generosity would make no sense apart from Jesus, that our care for one another would make no sense apart from Jesus, that our willingness to risk our own reputation to ex- extend the kingdom of God would make no sense apart from Jesus. That we would live like Jesus so that we would have an opportunity to talk about Jesus. You've heard me say this before, that we would live our lives as a gospel metaphor. And this is what Paul is saying here. This, in other words, hey, listen, go and be imitators of God. The Greek word used there for imitator is the same word from where we get the word mimic. We get the word mimic, you know, as you would... Mimic. Maybe young kids see their mom or dad doing something. I remember as, uh, as my kids were young that they would find a brush and act like they were on a cell phone, right? They would, they would, be, they would be mimicking mom and dad. One of the scariest things you see as parents is when your kids pick up some of your really bad habits. And it scares you to death a little bit. Like, okay, I got, I got the picture here, right? Like looking in a mirror sometimes. This is what Paul is saying, that we should mimic the character of God. And in order to do that, we've got to focus and represent certain obvious qualities that God has. I love these people that do impressions. And in order to do a good impression, I've heard, you've got to really study the people that are doing it and exaggerate some of their qualities. Maybe like Robert De Niro, you kind of can picture his like upside down friend. I'm not going to do it. Where he kind of sticks his, I'm not going to do that. Or George Bush, where he kind of squints his eyes a little bit and bobs his head, that kind of thing, right? That you can, you, you can mimic you know, some, of their, some of their character qualities. And in the same way, Paul is saying, listen, here's the, here's the thrust of the Christian life here. If you want to go do this, if you want to really live this life that's changed before a watching world, here's how you do it. Go and mimic God. As he works in you through the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit begins to change you and gives you the will to want to do it, but also the ability to be able to live this thing out. Well, God is, is so big. How are we going to do that? And I love this. We're going to do it as, as beloved children, our identity first, followed by obedience. Then in verse 2, he kind of explains <clears throat> the most glaring communicable attribute of God is this idea of love and walk in love. Walk in love. And we know what love is because of what we've seen Christ do on our behalf. And walk in love in verse 2, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Being an imitator of God simply means living your life as this gospel metaphor, letting everything in your life point to Christ. And when you fail, you run quickly back to him again and again. And this is what Paul's telling us. He's packed so much into this little book. Already speaking the truth to one another, forgiving one another, being generous to one another, people who don't deserve your generosity, maintaining unity of the body, being filled with the spirit, on and on it goes. He sums it all up. Okay, I want you to be imitators of God as beloved children. And then he points us so quickly to Christ. As if we were all confused on exactly what kind of life this would be, he points us to Christ. Walk in love like Christ did is what he's saying. I love that phrase, walk in love. 
There's no sprints of love here. This is the methodical, putting one foot in front of the other in love for the rest of your life. Some people come to the faith. They come to church. They get excited about the things of God, but it's momentary. And they want to leave out of here in the sprint and do everything that God's asking them to do. And we should respond to God in obedience all the time. But this is, this is a long obedience in the same direction. This is, this is the nature and character of our life forever. Maybe you know some heroes of the faith that you look up to. People that just loved God and walked with him for 50, 60, 70 years. This walk in love, such a great reminder. I am really good at loving people in spurts. Like I can just grin and bear it for a little bit. Like I, I can do this. Like I'm going I'm to go and do this, right? I'm going to love these people. But in my own strength, that's all it can be. And it's not genuine either. Paul's exhortation to us is to walk in love. That this would be the very thing that your life would be defined by. Would be the love of God working in and through you. It's what he even said. That the watching world will know that you're mine because of your incredible love for one another. We are God's people loved by God and given the power to love each other and the rest of the world in such a sacrificial way. So that the world might see the love of another kind. That the watching world would see the love of another kind. Not love that is temporary, not love that is fake and inauthentic, not love that, that, that loves just when it's convenient or easy, not love in a sprint, but the world would see the love of another kind through the local church. And that should be what defines us. And I grew up in church and my dad started several and he, and he pastored several others. And for the most part, when I remember them, I don't remember the theme of those churches or the people of God gathered being this overwhelming love. Sure, there were some phenomenal saints that walked us out. But church, this should be what other people see of us, not what we stand against. They should see the love of God in and through us. And not again in a sprint. Not like, okay, hey church, this is the season that we're going to really love each other. For the next month, I want your community groups to love each other. No, this is like if you are part of God's family, that his main communicable attribute to you, that we see in the person of Christ is this ability to love supernaturally. And it's what he's called us to do. Most of the world might look at the church and see a church that just loves when it's convenient or easy. Or maybe a church that just loves some type of people and not all the people. No, we should emulate and model and mimic the love of God as we've seen in Christ. And walk in love. If he stopped there, I think we could all walk out of here and we could, be, we could feel good about ourselves because we could compare our love to other people who are just angry and we would think, oh, we're doing pretty good. Like, you know, my love compared to my crazy uncle or whatever is good. Like, you know, I've got this down. But no, he says, I want you to love as Christ loved. And just a reminder for those of you who haven't thought about that, that Jesus didn't just love us when we were lovely. As a matter of fact, we've never been lovely. If we're lovely today, it's because we were first loved by Christ. Romans 5, 6 says this, For we, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What an incredible kind of love. A love that initiates, that overlooks wrong, that pursues, that is unconditional. The Bible says we were enemies of God. We were hostile in mind towards God. We were against him in every way. It's the sinful condition that we were born into. And in that condition, he sent Jesus to adopt us into his own family. And it wasn't cheap either. It cost him his life. Real love is costly. Our text says that Jesus gave himself up for us. I love that for us language because I think it is the very definition of what real love is. If love doesn't cost you anything, then it's not real love. It's I'm going to scratch your back if you scratch mine. That's not real unconditional kind of biblical love we're talking about here. Real love is costly. As Jesus gave himself up for us. That for us language so powerful. Later on in this chapter, in chapter 5, he would, Paul would instruct the husbands in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Self-sacrificial love is so powerful because it's impossible to do on your own. Sure, maybe in spurts of waves that you can do it, but for this to be the standard of your life, for you to walk in love, is, it creates this supernatural need of ours to be plugged into the source all the time so that the very love of Christ can work in us and through us. And if I know God at all, that he's going to put people in your life that are so difficult to love, that it's a daily reminder that you can't do this in your own power. This is why Jesus uses this language of adoption to describe his love for us. He says in John 14, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. I know Chuck and Jamie are leaving this, this week to go over to China to adopt a little girl. And they've known about this little girl and her name for a long time. And we pray for her in the office and we can't even bring it up without Jamie starting to cry. She's like, okay, God, quit talking about that. But just in this short little time that they've, they, it seems forever to them, I'm sure, this time that they've known of her and they've been praying for her and all the money that they've spent trying to pave the way to make her legally theirs and the, the prayers and the tears and the emotions and the sacrifice that's been poured into this little girl and they don't even have her. They've never even met her. This is just a foretaste of what God has done for us. It's impossible for us to love like that on our own. That is something that God does in and through us. The love of God expressed through the people of God, accompanied by the word of God, is so powerful to transform the heart. And again, this is not something we have to manufacture. No, 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 we just open the valve. We just let God's love in and through us work so powerfully in and through us, through the Holy Spirit, that it pours through us. What Paul's saying here is be imitators of God, church, and love in the same way that you've been loved. What God does in you, he wants to do through you. What God does in you, he wants to do through you. All of this and the 
salvation story and the meta narrative of the Old Testament into the New Testament all culminates with the person of Christ and not just for your benefit so that you can be part of the family of God and that you can extend this great love with which you've been loved to the rest of the world. We could do an eight-part series just on this love of God and, and we could use all these attributes about it being sacrificial and it being a pursuing love and initiating love and all of these things. We don't have time for that. But do you get the picture of how much God has loved you through Christ? If you ever doubt the goodness of God, just look back as far as the cross and be reminded of how much God is for you. Paul brings more definition to this kind of love in 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard this before, probably at a wedding. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Do you get that? Like with all the wisdom that you might muster up or all the prophecy that you might bring to the table or any of these things, if you do not have love, Paul says you're just a clanging symbol. You're just a lot of noise. But if I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge and I have all the faith as to remove mountains, but I have not love, then I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to go to, to be burned at the stake, I have not, but I have not love, I gain Nothing. They don't only read that part at the wedding about being burned to the stake. They read this next part. But love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things because love never ends. I love that love never ends, that in this infinite kingdom of God, that the seeds of love that you sow in people's lives will bear fruit forever because it never ends. And that it could be passed down from this generation to the next, to the next, to the next. This supernatural love in you and then through you, love never ends. You know, this passage is not even about marital love at all. Sorry to deflate you a little bit if you nostalgic about your wedding vows around this passage. Certainly applicable within marriage for sure. But it's really about love within the body of Christ and extended to the watching world. That's really what it's about. We tell the story of the gospel with our actions so that we would have an opportunity to speak about the gospel with our words. Living this incredible life of love, being an imitator of God, Paul clarifies for us is to walk in love. That we would let love be the standard of our life. When making a decision, when dealing with difficult people, we would ask ourselves, what is the loving thing to do here? Not as the right thing. Not as the thing that's going to make me feel the best. Not as the thing that's going to ease my conscience. What is, what is the loving thing to do? Love as Christ loved us 
and gave himself up for us. Ephesians 2 talks about this love of God. It's what we, uh, our brother Will read in the uh, scripture reading in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There's no such idea as someone who's received the love of God but refuses to extend the love of God. There's no such idea as an obedient Christian or son or daughter of God who has received the love but refuses to give love. First John tells us that you say you love God but you hate your brother, then you're a liar. I don't know how you can get much clearer than that. There's no such idea as a Christian who's received the love of God without an ongoing practice of showing that love to others. Church, I feel like we've got a lot to learn here. We've got to learn to walk in love in this way. To ask in every situation, what's the loving thing to do? Because we see then in our passage here that that is all ultimately what is the fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He says in verse 2 again, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering. This, this beautiful, pleasant aroma in the nostrils of God is the Christian who has been changed by God and extended that love to others. Fragrant aroma. It's funny, on a Friday night, I was out of town picking up the trailer for the church, and I came home, and Ashley had made Brussels sprouts. Not a fragrant aroma. And these weren't the frozen kind. These were like the real kind. Our house still stinks if you come over. And the funny thing about that is, is Ashley lit like 300 candles because we had people coming over that night. And as soon as they walk in the door, she's just quick to apologize. Hey, I'm sorry. Our sewer's not backed up. It's the, it's the Brussels sprouts the opposite of this fragrant aroma. Thought of my own life and even for our church, what is, what is the aroma that we put off as a gathered body? Is it this loud noise, this clanging cymbal that Paul talked about or is it this sweet aroma Offering of sacrifice to God. Let me give us some practical points here and then we're going to be done in just a minute or two. This is how I would encourage you to flesh this out. First is at home. Love your spouse and love your kids. I had a mentor one time when I called him and he's checking up on me and my heart, he asked me how I was doing. I said, I'm doing really good. And he said, how's Ash and the kids? Well, they're doing good. Then he said, when's the last time you did the dishes? And I was like, the, the dishes? Like, what, what does that have to do with anything? He said, I can normally tell how well you love your wife by how many times you do the dishes. And it's not like the dishes are hard. What he was telling me is, Luke, get off the couch. Express your love to your spouse and to your kids. 
It's so easy to play this game that we are this mission impossible for God kind of thing. But you know, we're, we're this really, we see if this flies, is at home. In a self-sacrificing way, how do you love your spouse and love your kids? And not just in these huge sensational ways. Like I love my kids so much, I bought them an iPad. No, not in, these, not in these huge ways. And if you buy your kids iPads, don't tell my kids that that exists, okay? Thank you. This is just in the monotony of life. How do you love them? Spouse, how do you love your wife when you're in an argument and you know you're right? How you do it? What's the loving thing to do here? As if God waited for us to get all of our act together before he would come and express his great love to us. No. This gets fleshed out at home first, and then it gets fleshed out in the church. Again, not in sensational ways, but in the everyday. If you've been with us very long or in church at all, you know some people are very difficult, quite difficult to love well. I think this is where we see the gospel really at work. I think it reminds us of our desperate need. You know, one of the ways that you can love the others in the church well is just by showing up. When they're grieving, when they're celebrating, when you're having a huddle, when you're having a communion, just show up. You don't have to have all your act together. You could have had a terrible week, be depressed or discouraged. You couldn't have... you didn't make the right thing, the rolls didn't bake right or whatever it is. I've heard all the excuses. One of the greatest things that you can do to love your church well is just to show up. Faithful, consistent, monotony of just showing up. Saying, God, I don't feel like even, even being here or doing this thing and I have nothing left to give. Well, this is not about you, bud. It's really not at all. This is the gathered church together. And then it gets fleshed out in the world. If you love your spouse and your kids well, and you love the people of the church well, but your love doesn't ever get past this bubble of Christianity, then we've got work to do. We've got to learn how to walk in love. In the world is where we look to love the last, the lost, and the least of these, just as Jesus did. Where we look to do for others physically what Christ has done for us spiritually. We've been reconciled, and so we've been given the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. Are we quick to reconcile? Are we quick to forgive? Are we quick to meet immediate needs that people would have, even if it costs at great cost to ourselves? My prayer for this church is that we would live our lives as gospel metaphors, showing grace, reconciling, restoring, letting all things point to Jesus. You may be in here today and say, you know what, Luke, that just sounds impossible, and it absolutely is. Especially if you're not part of God's family. Maybe you feel like you're on the outside looking in here, and today's a day for you to take a step of faith. Trust him with your life. Make him Lord of your life. Maybe you, as I've done so many times, just gotten a little lazy in this. And I think all this love of God is just for me and I'm just wallowing in it when it's clearly 
been given to me to extend to others. And this is why we do communion. I'm going to pray first in a second. We're going to participate in communion, this shared meal as a church family together. Saying this is not about me. Jesus says as we do this, we're to proclaim his death until he comes again. Jesus showed us what it was meant to live a life of love. And I pray, church, that we could do the same. Let me pray for us. Our communion servers are going to come. and You just come when you're ready. If you're not part of God's family, we, I'll be standing in the back if you'd like to talk or pray about that. or Maybe you'd write on your little connection card that you'd like to speak with a pastor. We'll contact you this week. Father, I thank you for uh, just the truth of your word, this beautiful message of the Apostle Paul to us that we're to imitate you by walking in love in a self-sacrificial way that we're emptying ourselves for the benefit of others. And as you've reconciled to us, that we reconcile others to you and relationally reconcile others. And as you've been so generous to us, then then we're generous to others. And as you've pulled us out of spiritual poverty and you've blessed us immensely, then we're supposed to help and do the very same thing. Lord, I pray that would be the definition of our lives and our marriages and our families and our little faith family here. We would be a church with a radical love for each other to radical love for you and for the watching world. Lord, thank you for this reminder of communion that you've given us thousands of years ago because you knew that I would need it. A reminder of dying to myself daily so that you would live in a mighty way in me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You come when you're ready. I'll be standing in the back if you'd like to pray with someone and then we'll worship together.